You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. In our technological age, we have come to deeply rely upon crowdsourced reviews, haven't we? Before we'll go to a restaurant, before we'll take our car to the mechanic, or before we'll make a purchase on Amazon, we read the reviews. <laughs> we need to explore the witness of others in order to make sound decisions, right? And the reviews of others either caution us away from a certain business or product with a one-star review, they leave us ambivalent about a product or a business with like a three-star review, or they give us the courage to go ahead and try something new by giving a five-star review. But as internet reviews have become the norm on Amazon and Yelp, one of the things that's happened is that people have started to write fake reviews about different products and businesses. People who have never actually tried a business and who have never actually tried a product write their reviews and give negative reviews to try and deter people for some reason. This has posed a problem to the public because how do I know if I'm encountering a legitimate review that's going to lead me with true guidance? How do I know that? Well, the brilliant people in Silicon Valley came up with a solution, and they created a distinction between verified users and non-verified reviews, right? Verified reviews versus non-verified reviews. Verified reviews are from people who are confirmed to have really tried the business or the product. They have the ability to speak truthfully from their own personal experience with the business or product. Now, check it out. Before we ever come to believe anything, before we make any major life decisions, we check out the reviews, don't we? We check out the reviews. Before we pick a place to live, we check out the reviews of those who have lived in the neighborhood, right? Before we uh, choose a career, we check out the reviews of those who have actually done that career. Before we take the next step in a relationship, we check out the reviews of the people who have known them longer than we have. And before we settle into a worldview, we listen to the reviews of family, friends, and authorities that we respect. And whether we realize it or not, family, our non-Christian friends are looking at our lives and our community for reviews about the Christian faith. They look at your life, the way you talk, the way you behave, the way you treat people, the way you use your words, right? And they look at our community. What do we do? Do we even matter? What use is it? To, to be connected to a community like that. They look at the reviews and they draw conclusions, right? And these friends, they look at these reviews and it either warns them away from the church, away from the love of God. It either leaves them ambivalent about the church or they get a five-star review that gives them the confidence to maybe try the life of faith. And I think that there are two reasons why Christian faith is declining in our culture. 
And the first reason is because many of our non-Christian friends, they only look at the fake reviews, the one-star reviews that come from other non-Christians who've never actually walked the life of faith, who have no experience with the Christian life, and they draw their conclusions about God and the Christian life from these one-star reviews. The second thing is I think many Christians are failing to provide their five-star review on the Lord and the life of faith. And what that does is it leaves nothing but the, the three-star reviews that come from cultural Christians who aren't really living out the faith. And it leaves our neighbors ambivalent about the Christian faith. Here's the deal. I want to ask you this morning, Christian, what kind of review does your life report about the Lord? What kind of review does your life give to our non-Christian friends and neighbors? That's the question I want you to wrestle with as we work through this text. And I'm going to give you good news about how you can grow in this way. But for all of my non-Christian friends out there, I want to ask you to ponder two questions as we work through the rest of this text. Again, we are so glad you're here. We're so glad you're here. This is the place where you're supposed to work through issues of life and faith and skepticism and doubt and all of the things that you're trying to get straight. But during the rest of this sermon, I want to invite you to ponder two things. First, I'd like to ask you to consider the possibility that you have been misled by fake reviews about God. And if that's the case, if you have been misled and you've, it's left a bad taste in your mouth about God and the life of faith, the first step is actually realizing that you've only read the one-star bad reviews, perhaps, of other non-Christians. That's the first thing I want you to consider. And then the second thing I want to invite you to consider is this. You've tried new things in your life based upon the good reviews of other people. Why not try the life of faith based upon the good reviews of true Christians? who know God and love him. I want you to consider that. I'm putting that before you today for your consideration. As we come to Psalm 34 this morning, David gives us his five-star review of the Lord. And the psalmist not only gives us the confidence to try the life of faith in God through his witness, but he also calls the whole community of faith to add their five-star reviews in of the Lord so that our non-Christian friends and neighbors may come to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we're going to approach this text this morning through two points. We're going to look at the witness of this text, and we're going to look at the welcome of this text. So first, the witness of this text, which I'm pulling from verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to look at the welcome of this text, which I'm pulling from verses 8 through 10. So let's check out our first point, the witness of this text. Now, if you're new to the Bible or if this passage is unfamiliar to you, let me give you a little bit of how this passage flows. If you put your eyes on the text, take a look at it. Verses 1 through 2 give us David's praise of the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, so on and so forth. And then in verse 3, he calls the community of faith to join in that praise. And he says, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Why? Well, the reason why comes in verses 4 through 7, if you take a look. He gives an individual testimony. He gives his individual review. But then he starts to pull in the other reviews of the community. He, he provides his, 
his yelp for the Lord, as it were. And what he shows us is that the reason why he blesses the Lord at all times, the reason why he invites the community to join him is because God delivers from all fears, God exchanges shame for joy, and God saves from all troubles. Those are his three reasons. Why does he lift his praise up to God? Why is he so excited about God? Why does he perhaps look like a crazy, insane man to everyone outside of his faith? Because he has experienced the Lord setting him free from his fears. And he has experienced the Lord exchanging his shame for his joy. And he has experienced the Lord delivering him, saving him from all of his troubles. So, uh, the end of our passage, I'm going to stop today at verse 10. But the end of the passage is a promise. It's a promise to that those who seek the Lord will lack no good thing. That is a great promise. Are you, in, are you in a place where you're longing for good things? Do you feel like you lack good things? Does your soul feel like it's empty? There's an ache that you can't really resolve. The invitation of the text is to seek the Lord and have all of your longings and needs met. Let's work through this flow. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. David begins and he says, he opens his psalm with praise, and he states his commitment to bless the Lord, to give voice to the Lord's greatness at all times and in every situation. He says in the text, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. And in the rest of the psalm, we will see David's reasons. We will go into those more deeply. But I think that the old African church father, Augustine, really captured the significance of these first two verses with this extended quote. This is what Augustine says about these verses and what they mean. He says, he, this is what he says to his congregation. He says, when are, when are you to bless the Lord? When he showers blessings on you? When earthly goods are plentiful? When you have a plethora of grain, oil, wine, gold, silver? While your mortal body remains healthy, uninjured, and free from disease? While everything that is born on your estate is growing well and nothing is snatched away by untimely death? While every kind of happiness floods your home and you have all you want in abundance? Is it only then that you are to bless the Lord. No, but at all times. So you are to bless him equally when from time to time these good things let you down or are taken from you. When there are fewer births or the already born slip away. These things happen and their consequence is poverty, need, hardship, disappointment, and temptation. But you saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall be in my mouth always. So when the Lord gives you these good things, bless him. And when he takes them away, bless him. He it is who gives and he it is who takes away. But he does not take himself away from anyone who blesses him. That's how Augustine captures the meaning of these first two verses. David cannot allow his praise to be tamped down. He blesses the Lord at all times. And then he goes on to say in verse 2 that he boasts in the Lord. He doesn't boast in his gifts, though they were many. He doesn't boast in his position or strength, though he was a warrior who had been anointed as the king of Israel. He boasts in the Lord. He brags on the Lord and not himself. That's what praise is. It's bragging on the Lord and all his greatness and what he's done. And notice at the end of the verse, he says, let the humble... Hear this praise of God and be glad. And what he's suggesting 
is that only the humble hear this testimony about the Lord as good news. In other words, if this testimony doesn't sound like good news to you, it's because you're too proud to hear it. You don't sense your true need, and you still believe the lie that you can live without the Lord. That's what David is suggesting when he says, let the humble hear and be glad. And what I want to invite you to do is just for the rest of this message, open your ear of humility. And for a second, suspend your judgment and just allow yourself to wonder what it would be like if this were true. Because our, our proposal is that it is and that it changes everything. So let's continue to work through this. We get the individual and corporate witness in verses 4 through 7. Why does David bless the Lord at all times and continually praise the Lord? Why does David extend a call for the community of faith to join him? Because the Lord delivers from all fears, the Lord exchanges shame for joy, and the Lord saves out of all troubles. That's verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6. This is David's review of God and the life of faith. And it's an ancient testimony with modern relevance. Because, listen, fear, shame, and troubles still plague us, don't they? Let's work through these. Let's start with fear. If I needed any convincing that we live in a culture of fear, it, it came fully to me when we became pregnant with our first child, little Tiana, who is now singing in worship. Now, when we first got pregnant, all of these questions started coming to our heads. What kind of baby formula should we buy? What kind of vitamins should Vanessa take? What hospital should we be a part of? Who should be our, our pediatrician, our, our obstetrician? Like, 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 what if we take the wrong baby home? I don't want to take no big-headed baby home, leave my baby in the hospital, right? All of these fears started to surface. And then those fears only ticked up when Tiana arrived and we were bringing her home. I drove down the highway 35 miles an hour with the blinker lights on because I was afraid of that fragile little thing in the back. And, you know, like before we actually got her home, you know, we went and did the, the Babies R Us, you know, registration for your, your list and, you know, so that people could buy you gifts that you want. And we went into Babies R Us and they gave us that little gun where you could start to put the gun on the products and it puts it into your wish list. And Vanessa goes into Babies R Us, we go in together, Vanessa gets the gun and she's like, oh, that's a cute dress. Beep. I was like, hey, babe, let me see that gun. I took that gun, I was like, I was, I was looking at all the products. I, I, this, this was me in the, in the store. I'm, I'm like, boom, let me, let me see that guy. Boom, electrical outlet covers. Boom, gates to protect her from falling down the stairs. Bam, you know, covers for the corners of the table so she don't bust her head. Bam, you know, uh, covers to, to, to lock the garbage can so you know, my baby don't fall in the garbage, right? Like, you know, I, I had, everything in that store that appealed to me was based upon my fears. And then when we finally brought her home, the most ordinary activities suddenly became dangerous in our minds. Sleeping was dangerous. I would wake up in the middle of the night. I would shoot out of the bed, and I would go down, and I'd put my face up against Tiana's to make sure she was still breathing. Eating was dangerous. I used to cut the food up into such small pieces that people thought we were fancy and feeding Tiana pate. 
And I was always ready to give her the Heimlich. I was always ready. If she made any little noise, I was like, you good? You good? Yeah, I will do that. Heimlich, right? Every ordinary thing became day. Playing was dangerous. It was fear. And parenting fears are only one subset of the larger culture of fear that assaults us. Think about all the ordinary things of life that, that make us afraid. Sending kids to school, shootings, fear. Walking through the neighborhood, crime, fear. School applications, rejection, fear. School grades, failure, fear. Work deadlines, incompetence, fear. The most ordinary things become terrifying to us. Why? Here's why. Because modern culture promises to give us the means of control over things in the chaos of life. And it tells us that this control is key to our flourishing and happiness. But it also gives us the responsibility for controlling everything in our lives. And when we feel responsible for controlling situations and outcomes that cannot be controlled, it's terrifying because it feels like our flourishing and our happiness is slipping through our fingers along with the control that we never really had. It feels like when you don't have control, there goes my happiness, there goes my flourishing. And what we typically do is we double down and we work harder to try and secure that flourishing and that happiness only to become exhausted. What we notice is that fear overdetermines our actions and thoughts. We're afraid of failure. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of the unknown. We're afraid of insignificance. And ultimately, we're afraid of death. Living in fear is like spending your whole life running. It's exhausting. And what David is showing us in this text is that if you want to get off that treadmill of fear, he has a new pathway. Fear is such a part of our lives that we wonder how David could say that the Lord delivered him from all his fears when the world seems to be so scary. The answer is that he was confident that the Lord is in sovereign control of everything. And God, the God who is in sovereign control is the same God of love who is bent on our flourishing if we would only trust in him. That's how David can say that the Lord relieved his fears. Because what David did is he took his fears and he measured them against a great God rather than taking his great fears and using them to measure the Lord. You see, it's the reverse for David. David knew that taking refuge in God is true security. Fear. But what about shame? You see that? Those who look to him, their faces are enlightened and they shall never be put to shame. Dr. Britt Marie Schiller, who's from the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute, said in her work, The Dynamics of Shame, that, quote, shame is the emotion experienced when we feel exposed as inadequate, weak, and powerless. A feeling of helplessness, a feeling of failure, a feeling that one amounts to less than one aspires to be, that one falls short of an ideal. Now listen, in our honest moments, we all experience this. Underneath it all, underneath all of the masks that we put on for people, underneath all of the cover-ups, we live with shame. And, and, and that shame leads to a fear that if people knew who we really were, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with us. And if, you, if you're like, no, I'm good, I don't have any shame, just think about what it would be like if we released all of your personal emails. 
Just think about if all of the conversations and things that you've said behind people's backs came to light. I was just sitting with a member who accidentally copied someone on an email. And he didn't want them on that email, and he was trying to speak frankly, but he wished he could reel that back in, and it created a mess. And he didn't even say anything bad about them. He just offered honest criticism. But even that, we're fragile. Why? Because shame lurks underneath. And it seems like every criticism and everyone who says something to us, it scratches at that feeling that we are not enough. It scratches at our insufficiency and our weakness. Shame stalks us. We experience shame when we let our friends down, when we feel inadequate, when we fail to achieve our goals or make stupid decisions, when people are unhappy with us, when we don't live up to standards, whether they're our own standards for ourselves or someone else's standard that they put on us. But I want you to look at this passage again. Look at the passage again. Their faces are radiant. They shall never be put to shame. The radiant face was the psalmist's way of saying that they will have joy. And what he's doing is he's contrasting joy and shame. And Ashley and I, we were talking on Thursday. She came over to the house and we were kicking it. And we were talking about this passage. And one of the things that we talked about was the relationship between shame and joy. And I said, joy is, 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 a, is a result of looking outside of ourselves. It is a self-forgetfulness that leads us into joy. And Ashley said, and shame is the exact opposite because it leads you back into yourself, which I thought was a really thoughtful insight. While shame is self-absorption and fixation on your own inadequacies, it's a specialty of modern people, right? It's that inward turn. Joy, is, it's, it's focused outward on an unchanging God. The psalmist is saying that the Lord replaces shame with joy, but pay attention to the text. By shifting our focus. Look at, look at what the passage says. Those who look to him are radiant. The idea is that if you look to anything else, if you look to a career, if you look to family, if you look to a relationship, it will ultimately not relieve you of your shame. It will only exacerbate it. It will only make it worse. Only looking to the Lord can relieve that shame. Because in the ancient world, here's the thing. Shame in our day is different from the way that ancient people thought about shame. You know the way ancient people thought about shame? A thing that was shameful was some false thing that you trusted in that in the end would prove to let you down. What he's saying is that those who look to the Lord will never, will never be let down. They will not come to the end of their days and see the Lord let them down. But if you trust in money, if you trust in a career, if you trust in some this worldly relationship, they will let you down. They are not enough to secure you. They are not enough to fill your life with meaning. They're not enough to give you purpose. They're not enough to save you in the ways that you know you need rescue. Shame. But troubles. Check it out. Troubles. Now, some commentators on this passage... They are, con they, they are conflicted. They don't know if when David says, this poor man cried, he was given a personal testimony, or if in the context of their corporate worship, 
David steps up the lead, and then he points to someone in the community and said, this poor man cried. And the Lord delivered him from all his fears. I, I think that could be the meaning. And if it is, what we also see is that we are invited to see God's work in the lives of our fellow community members. Sometimes you can't see God at work in your own life. But if you see God at work in someone else's life, it gives you hope that the same God who's working in their life can do a work in your life. No matter how tough it may be, he's inviting us in. This poor man cried in the and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. Now, listen, troubles serves as a sort of catch-all for all of the hard things in life, for the entire human experience. Just think of the different kinds of trouble that we face. And most troubles seem to fit into one of three categories, okay? We have intrapersonal troubles. Those are troubles on the inside, those are heart troubles. Those are, those are emotional problems, spiritual problems, psychological troubles. We have intrapersonal troubles that are basically the result of our own brokenness and our own sin. We have interpersonal troubles in relationships and in social dynamics. And this has to do with the breakdown between people, between communities. And that's either the result of us sinning against someone else or someone else sinning against us. We have interpersonal troubles and then we have impersonal troubles and that's just circumstantial like when your basement floods like when your car breaks down like when your health breaks down and it didn't have anything to do with a moral failure or a sin it's just hard stuff of life now what David says is that the Lord saves the, the, the beloved of God out of all their troubles not from every kind of trouble, which is to say the promise of God when you come to him and trust in him is not a problem-free life. And guess what? If you don't come to God, you still won't have a problem-free life. But what the Lord promises is when you get into trouble, he will save you out of that trouble. And ultimately, that is the promise at the end of your life, at the end of the age. What will God do? He will draw his people out of all their troubles. That's a promise to live by. You might have troubles right now. You might have hardships right now. You might have suffering right now. But the promise of God is that these light and momentary afflictions will not compare with the weight of glory that he's going to bring into your life. He will deliver you out of all your troubles. And after David bears witness, he then extends welcome, which brings us to our final point, the welcome. I want you to focus on verses 8 through 10 to see this, okay? After he offers his own testimony, his own personal review of the Lord, David invites us into the life of faith that he has experienced. And not only does he welcome us to taste and see God's goodness, but he also calls God's people to add our own personal testimonies, our own five-star reviews to encourage everyone in our sphere to taste and see that the Lord is good, especially our non-Christian friends and neighbors. David wants all of you this morning to experience that goodness. The goodness of the Lord is the focus as we turn to verse 8. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The goodness of God, just to put it clearly, is God's perfection in every direction. God's perfection in every direction. Pick a direction. Love 
He's got perfect love. God is love. He is the paradigm of love. He is the author of love. His story is a story of love. His ways are ways of love. His promises are the promises of love. He's perfection in the direction of love. He's perfection in the direction of benevolence. His generosity, his compassionate disposition toward those who are weak and suffering and needy. God is near to the brokenhearted. A bruised reed he will not break in a smoldering wick. He will not snuff out those hanging by a thread. God is near to them. His heart throbs with love for them. He's perfection in every direction. Pick something. Holiness, patience, righteousness, justice. He's perfection in every direction. But what does David mean when he says that God is good? That's the systematic theology answer. Systematic theology is where we collect what the Bible says as a whole about one topic and we organize it under a topic. That's the systematic approach to God's goodness. But what was on David's mind when he said that the Lord is good and he invited us to taste it? He meant that God's essential being is good. His plans are good. His promises are good. His provision is good. His timing is good. His guidance is good. His presence is good. His law is good. His yeses are good. And his noes are good. And now, listen to me, this is where it all comes to a head. Now, we can see and we can taste the goodness of God in ways that David could not. Because now, we're on this side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, we get to taste the goodness of God in even greater ways. Because in the gospel... Jesus tasted your fears so that you can taste his peace and security. When you trust in Christ, you no longer have to fear failure because your failures are swallowed up into all his successes. That's union. You don't have to fear people because you have the acceptance of the king of glory, the only one who truly matters. And it enables you to face rejections in this life. You don't have to fear the unknown because if you know that the king has set his love on you, then you don't need to know where he will take you in his love. You are confident. It drains the fear out of the unknown. You don't have to fear insignificance because, listen, how significant must you be to the Lord if he would leave his throne in glory to make you his treasure, to bring you home to his love? You don't have to worry about insignificance. The gospel shouts the significance of God's beloved. That's powerful. You don't have to ultimately fear death either because Jesus conquered the grave. Why did God send his son into the world to take on human flesh? Here's why. Because he lived the life that we were supposed to live, but we didn't. And Jesus lived that life beautifully, perfectly. He was everything that a human being was meant to be. He lived a perfect life of justice, a perfect life of patience, a perfect life of love, a perfect life of mercy, where we failed utterly. And he took his perfect record. He took all of his stats, and he credited that to us. And then we were still on the hook for all our failures because God is just. And just like a good police officer cannot watch a crime happen in front of him and not act, 
Neither can a holy God look at sin and not act in judgment against it. But the good news is that the father acted in judgment against the son so that he could act in blessing toward us. So that he could act in redemptive ways toward us. So do you see it? He gives you a righteousness you could never win and he takes away sins you could never work off. That's good news. But ultimately, he didn't stay in the grave. <laughs> he lives. And because he lives, that is the promise that you live too. That you shall rise. That fear can do nothing but usher you in to the presence of your greatest friend. Jesus turned death into an Uber ride to glory. That's good news. You don't have to fear it. You can stare through death. And know that death is just like a servant who leads you back home to your greatest love. That's good news. Jesus deals with our fears like nobody else. Nobody takes away fear like Jesus. And also Jesus tasted your shame so that, you can, so that your face can radiate the joy of his approval and acceptance. By faith, your inadequacies are engulfed by the sufficiency of Jesus. Your weakness is covered by the strong love of Jesus. That's good news. And your helpless feelings are met by an ever-present Jesus. Nobody deals with shame like Jesus. And nobody deals with trouble like Jesus. Jesus tasted your troubles and your trials so that you could taste the relief and restoration of God. The gospel deals with intrapersonal Troubles, Because the gospel actually addresses our hearts. Accumulating money does not fix your heart. A human relationship does not fix your heart. Being close with family and friends does not fix your heart. Nothing in our modern life can fix your broken heart. But Jesus can. Jesus can. All you have to do is call on him. Call on him. He deals with intrapersonal trouble. He deals with interpersonal trouble by bringing forgiveness and reconciliation among us. Because once you have tasted grace, you long to show grace. Once you have been forgiven, now you long to extend forgiveness. And listen, if you are a non-Christian here this morning, I, it's, it's great. You probably believe in forgiveness. You probably believe in justice. You probably believe in many of the things that Christians believe. But what we're suggesting to you is nothing can ground the life of living those things out. Like the gospel life, like life in connection with Jesus, because he becomes our ultimate reason for everything. Everything that we do has some gospel analog that informs the way that we live. Marriage. Well, guess what? Scripture teaches us how to love one another like, like Jesus. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, learn how to, to love and, 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 and work with their husbands just like the son works with the father and the spirit. Parenting. You have the care of a great father to inform the way you take care of your kids. It's every bit of human life has its analog in the gospel, and it gives us direction and clarity, and it helps us to live the beautiful life. What are your sources? Where do you ground the, the good life? We want to invite you to Jesus because he deals with our troubles. And lastly, Jesus, he deals with impersonal troubles by turning every hard circumstance into something that serves our growth in grace and our maturity in the faith and ultimately our joy. Ultimately our joy. That's what he does with impersonal troubles. Jesus, do you see it? Jesus tasted the cup 
of just wrath that belongs to you and I because of our injustices so that we could taste the cup of salvation by faith alone and Christ alone. It's that simple. Jesus, listen, has five-star reviews from the global and historic church. You know, listen, if you really want to get a sense of a business or a product, you got to look at the quality of reviews, and you're going to look at the scope of reviews. A product that only has positive reviews in one culture is very limited, and that's modern life. But Jesus has five-star reviews from the global and historic church, from people who have lived in the underground church in China, who have experienced persecution, from Middle Eastern women who have served faithfully in obscurity, to Latinos and Africans, to people all around the globe. Listen to some of these. This was Polycarp's five-star review when he was facing martyrdom, when they said, we're going to kill you if you don't give up on Jesus. This is what Polycarp said. He said, 86 years I have served Christ, and he has never done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deeming me worthy of this day and this hour, that I may be among thy martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. Augustine gave his five-star review when he said, You have called, you have cried, and you have pierced my deafness. You have radiated forth, you have shined out brightly, and you have dispelled my blindness. You have sent forth your fragrance, and I have breathed it in, and I long for you. I have tasted you, and I hunger and thirst for you. You have touched me, and I ardently desire your peace. Julian of Norwich, a great woman of the history of the church, said this. This was her five-star review. God of thy goodness, give me thyself, for you are enough for me, and in you I find my all. Brother Yoon, a Chinese evangelist, gave his five-star testimony. He said, I once felt ashamed and guilty before the Lord, but he was patient and loving to me, not treating me as I deserved, but gently helping me like an eagle tending her baby chicks. Octavius Winslow gave his five-star review of Jesus when he said, Christ's boundless grace confronts our deep necessities. Christ's promised presence confronts our sad and gloomy loneliness. Jesus, filled with grace so overflowing, with love so tender, with sympathy so exquisite, with power so illimitable, with resources so boundless, with a nature so changeless, stands before us and says to each trembling heart, Fear not. These reviews, these five-star reviews from the global and historic church can be multiplied many times over. But I want to invite everyone hearing this word right now to taste and see that the Lord is good. He's for you. And if he's for you, no one can successfully be against you. But you might be wondering, all right, look, look, what does it actually mean to taste and see that the Lord is good? Briefly, I want to give this to you. This is what I want to encourage you to start doing. Now, this is for our non-Christian friends in here. But it's not just for you. It's also for our Christian members in here so that you know how to be more helpful to your non-Christian friends. Because isn't that what we want at the end of the day? For our lives. Just like Jesus' life was poured out for our flourishing. That we get the privilege as God's people to pour our, our lives for the flourishing of our neighbors, that we get to seek their good. That's our privilege to represent him. How honored would you be if you got a call from the White House this afternoon saying that the president wanted you to represent him? Just imagine it's a president that you voted for, okay? <laughs> How would you feel? 
so honored. What does it mean to you that the king of glory has invited you? Has let you join in the work to share his love with other people. This is, these are ways you can be helpful. Non-Christian friends, I want to invite you to taste and see that the Lord is good by doing the following. First, I want to invite you to start praying. Start talking to God like God is a real person. Okay? Ask him to show himself to you, to work in your life. Ask for help with specific problems that you're facing and specific needs that you have. And as you see what Christians would call answers to those prayers, thank God. Give him your gratitude. And think of him as a faithful friend who is delighted to have met those needs. Start praying. Second, start imagining. Start imagining what your life would look and feel like if you were confident in the claims of the Christian faith. If you really believed that the, the Christian account of the world, the Christian story of reality were, were really the truth. Imagine what your life could be like. Imagine how free you could be if it was true that you were loved by Jesus and none of your failures could dislodge you from that love. If God was for you and nothing could, could successfully be against you. Imagine what it would be like to be able to call on all power rather than to rely upon your little, your little resources. Imagine what that life would be like. Start imagining. Another way of putting this is I want to invite you to start being skeptical about modern claims that come from the culture, about what life is and what it means and what you ought to be doing. Start being more skeptical of the messages of modern culture and start being more humble and teachable and curious about the Christian faith. Because if it's everything that Christians claim it to be, if it's everything that billions of people have always said it is, I, I think it's reasonable to say that it warrants your fair judgment and attention, right? Next, start acknowledging Start acknowledging before God in prayer, like talk to God. It's going to seem funny at first, right, if you're not used to praying. It might feel like you're just speaking into the air. But start acknowledging your stresses, your weaknesses, your guilt, your shame, your sins, and your fears before God. As if he really wanted to do something to relieve you of those burdens. Because he does. He does. And then finally, start connecting with fellow sojourners. Which is to say... Make it a goal to be consistently connected to a Christian church. The local church community is the epicenter of God's presence and work in the world. And it's near impossible to taste and see that the Lord is good if you don't come to the place where God spreads his table. Okay, does that make sense? God spreads the table of his grace through the preaching of the word, through the administration of what Christians call the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's table, because these are means by which God works his grace into our hearts. Come to the place where you can actually taste the goodness of God through the spread table that he offers in Christian worship. And listen, as you connect with Christians, connect with real believers, when I, I want to invite you to ask Christians in your life to share how and why they arrived at faith. Try to see what faith looks like in its best expressions with people who are word and deed Christians who are connected to the global and historic church. What I'm saying is don't base your judgments of Christianity and the Christian God on straw men. Because you know what? You have every right to be angry when Christians create straw men of atheists and of non-Christians who aren't atheists but aren't sure where they are. It's not cool to ever strongman anyone. What we would ask is that you don't strongman the Christian faith and take the worst expressions of the Christian faith that are out of alignment with the global and historic church as your measure of whether the Christian faith is true. Look for the best expressions of the Christian faith and try to understand. Ask people 
what they think your life could look like if you started to believe this? What could they see for your life? How would you change? The psalmist ends our section of Psalm 34 in verse 10 by saying that a ferociously powerful lion, its strength fails, and so does ours. However, no matter what state you find yourself in this morning, if you will seek the Lord, his promise is that you will lack no good thing. So taste and see that the Lord is good. If you need someone to go to lunch with to ask questions about this message, Grace Mosaic members, raise your hands. Any of these kind people would be delighted to talk to you about faith. We care about you, all of you, whether you're a believer, whether you don't know what you are. We care about you, and we want to be helpful dialogue partners on your journey. And ultimately, we want you to taste God's goodness. So let's continue to connect and work through what it means to see Jesus as Savior and Lord of the world. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.